0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to GBA's March Trade Policy Podcast. My name is Tano Neff, and today we're joined by Brian Pomper from Making Gump. Brian, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So today I'm going to start a little broadly. At the beginning of the month, the Biden administration released its trade policy agenda for 2022. And, Brian, I'm wondering if anything surprised you there.
1: No, no real surprises. I think, um, I mean, the, the every administration by statute, releases this report every year, and it's often doesn't candidly change much from year to year. And I think that's that's true here, too. You see the same focus on uh, labor and environment, worker-centered trade policy, uh, figuring out our relationship with China, supply chain, resiliency, those sorts of things, I, I think you see. Really, this report often just reflects the urgency of the moment. I mean, you, you sort of, these these reports will, will reflect whatever is important in trade policy at the moment. I think this was a, a good summary of all of that. Long answer to your question, no surprises. That's the short answer.
0: Great. Yeah. And so kind of in that same routine under statute kind of vein, the Biden administration will soon begin a review of the first slew of Section 301 tariffs. That's kind of a routine procedure that happens under law. Do you think the investigation will yield renewal of the tariffs? Do you think it's gonna bring any new insights? I know there's a lot of variables that can go into a decision like this, but I'm curious your thoughts on that.
1: Ah, well, that's a very interesting question. It's funny that you call it routine because I, I think it is the furthest thing from routine that we've had these 301 tariffs quite so long like this. Uh, so yes, under the statute, under section 301, every, uh, well, I should say after four years, I believe there needs to be a review of those uh, tariffs and they expire unless an interested party seeks to have them extended or asks to have them extended. Uh, what's interesting about this is that the U.S. government, of course, self-initiated this these investigation or this investigation. And there's different tariff lists, as you know. Uh, and there was some legal question, boy, can the U.S. government on its own say, yeah, we're going to extend this. But I think instead, the government is likely, U.S. Tara is likely to ask an interested party, and of course, there are many interested parties here who support the tariffs, to request uh, by, I think it's um, it's like a 90-day period, I can't remember, but there's some period in advance of when the tariffs would otherwise expire where an interested party needs to request they be renewed. I'm sure they'll find somebody to do that. There's some question whether they need to do that kind of analysis of each individual tariff list. Um, because really the the time, that four-year period runs from the time when the tariffs were imposed, right? So you've got these four different lists. And so arguably there are four different times, but I I think we are hearing the administration is likely just to collapse all of the lists into one broader review. Now, what's important about that is uh, we have for some time been expecting USTR and the administration to take some action in response to China's failure fully to meet its phase one commitments. We had been hearing pretty strongly that that was going to take place after the Beijing Olympics, which I think ended February. Well, no, I can't remember when they ended, but it was it was going to take place soon after the the Beijing Olympics ended. Now, of course, that hasn't happened. Uh, The things that we we really had heard was a new Section 301 investigation on industrial subsidies, uh, some sort of outbound capital investment screening mechanism, uh, more export controls. We'd heard of a suite of, of actions the administration had been considering. There was subsequently, a, a, two weeks ago from tomorrow, there was a principal's meeting at the White House where uh, the decision was made to postpone those, those issues, I think for a minimum of six to eight weeks. In part, I think because of the Ukraine invasion, by Russia, the war Russia launched there. But also I think there's some concern among some of the other agencies, in particular commerce, that would like a broader exclusion process and Treasury that I think is just generally skeptical of the tariffs and a new 301 to begin with. So I don't think there was sufficient consensus at the interagency to launch these new enforcement actions. I say all of that, well, there's also, of course, the existing outstanding exclusions as part of the process that USTR launched on the 549 tariff lines, where they have asked for comment. And these are products who had exclusions that had originally been granted and extended at least once. And that universe is 549. We had heard that USTR has made those decisions and they were going to grant something on the order of 350 of those 549, which amounts to, I think, somewhere between 60 and 70%. So actually, Quite a significant majority, so I think we were expecting those exclusions to be announced around the same time as the 301, the new 301. I, I tell it all tell you all that background because I think that's all bound together now. I think the review of the existing 301 tariffs, a new 301 exclusion process, or I'm sorry, a new 301 investigation, and the existing exclusions, the 549. I think those are all bound together and are likely to be announced somewhat contemporaneously if not at the same time so i think we're a bit in a period of a holding pattern waiting to see what ultimately is decided at the interagency
0: great thank you for that uh inside perspective brian and so kind of on the same uh, page of china i'm wondering if you have any status updates or any thoughts on the timeline for a conference between uh house American Competes Act, and then also the USECA legislation in the Senate. Um, We're also seeing a big push for the CHIPS Act specifically. People are saying, you know, do we bring it out? Do we pass it by itself? Or do we move this conference along quickly and make sure that we get those CHIPS funding? So I'm curious your thoughts on the timeline there.
1: Yeah, the CHIPS Act certainly is very popular. Uh, I don't think it's going to be pulled out. I think that uh, that eventuality would happen only if uh, kind of the mental equivalent of the, the break glass in case of emergency, I, I, I mean, I think there's a strong desire to keep that really as the centerpiece of, of whatever this bill becomes. Uh, so in terms of process, it's interesting because the Senate passed the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act in June of last year. It includes what's called a revenue measure. It, all those, the, the tariff exclusion process, all the new miscellaneous tariff uh, bill item, lowering those tariffs, those are, those are revenue measures. And under the U.S. Constitution, revenue measures, things that really change the flow of dollars uh, to the the federal treasury, revenue measures must originate in the House of Representatives. And what that means is that that you seek a bill is not something that uh, really can be conferenced with the House. So uh, it it has what's called a blue slip problem. So when the House passes their pass their version of the competes act. Really, there's only one live version of this legislation and that's the competes act. The Senate needs to go through a series of procedures to actually have a product. And I think the formal term is to disagree with the house in order to allow there to be a formal conference. And I think the way that is likely to work is the Senate will pull up, it will call up the house bill which is now an HR numbered bill, And so you could add a revenue measure to that bill because that originated in the House of Representatives. So the, the Senate will call up that competes act. They will strike all of the text and replace it with the USICA text. And then they will pass that bill. That's a lot of process. And it requires uh, every, every step along that way is, again, in Senate parlance, we say debatable, which means it is subject to cloture. And that's a whole process. You need 60 votes. You got to file a petition. You got to wait two days. Then you got to do a 60, 60 vote threshold. There's debate time. And so it can be pretty time consuming. L- Leader Schumer is well aware that that is likely the process he needs to take on this. And he's perfectly comfortable with it. The question is, when does it happen? The, I'm going to give you a little bit more uh, Senate uh terminology here. But the way that you find out if uh, a bill can be brought up typically is you ask unanimous consent for the bill to be brought up. And the way you find out if all those senators are gonna allow you to bring it up is you, you do what's called a hotline. The cloakroom will call every Senate office and say, hey, you know, can we bring this up? My understanding is a hotline was run on the Republican side earlier this week on the competes act. And again, more terminology, it's snagged, meaning that there were, there were objections on the Republican side to just bringing it up, I think as we all expected. And the objections were, I'm told in the the high single digits, so quite a few objections, not likely something that could be worked out. It's very, very likely you're going to end up having to go through this whole process of closure. I think there are, I've heard three, uh, maybe four separate closure votes. So that's, that's a significant chunk of time. There had been some hope it could move to go to conference, actually point conferees, uh, before the Easter recess, that's still possible. Uh, I think the, the Senate is going to be pretty tied up on the uh, nominee of, uh, for the Supreme Court, KBJ, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She starts her hearings next week. I think it'll be all that week, and then you've got another week to consider it on the floor. Once that happens, I think you could potentially see some movement uh, on the floor on this, but it wouldn't surprise me if it slips. But my understanding is that still every intention is that they do go to a formal conference and try to hash out their differences. They're, they're having some conversations informally now, the different committees, but I think they're still pretty preliminary. And I think the conventional wisdom is true, which is that the, the bill is really going to, they're going to start with USICA and they're going to make changes to USICA, kind of using that as a template, because USICA was a fully bipartisan bill. And COMPETES Act, I think, had one Republican supporter. So uh, I think from that standpoint, and, and the senators, of course, feel very strongly about this. Of course, the House members feel just as strongly. So it, it's not going to be an easy conference. They really do have to find some way, some landing zone to give some of the House priorities purchase in this bill in, in order really to kind of get it across the finish line. But that's uh, that's, here's another term of art that's called Legislating, so I'm I'm hopeful that they will find their way forward, and and there will be a bill sometime before the August
0: recess. Great, thank you, Brian, and thank you for that terminology and procedure. Awesome, <laughs> that's very very helpful. Um, I really appreciate it. And so, staying on the Hill, you know, there's a vote today on permanent normal trade relations with Russia in the House. I'm curious, Brian, what are your thoughts? You know, what's in the bill, and what else, if anything, can we inspect to see uh, on Russia?
1: Sure, so let's let's talk about what's in the bill. It, it is gonna pass today with overwhelming support. I believe it's on the suspension calendar. So it's gonna it's going to get a ton of votes. The the bill uh, essentially allows the president to, um, well actually, it may all just automatically apply the column two duty rates. And what, what I mean by that is it revokes permanent normal trade relations. So the, the bill revokes permanent normal trade relations, but it gives the president the option to uh extend most favored nation which trade dorks like me call the column one duties uh which are the mfn rates right the most favored nation rates uh it allows the president to to do that on a one-year kind of temporary basis uh the president has to certify certain things to congress he's got to consult with congress it's subject to a resolution of disapproval so if congress disagrees with the president they could pass a resolution to, to disapprove of extending uh, the, the most favored nation to russia so that kind of shares responsibility between the legislative and executive branch my understanding is this was really to hang up over the last few days that um, how much discretion to give to the president and how much control congress should keep over this so where they've landed basically is give the president the right to proclaim this one year extension of mfn And allow Congress to to vote to disapprove it. By the same token, it also allows the president to to grant uh, permanent normal trade relations again, subject to the same disapproval resolution. Uh, And I should say, uh, also with respect to Belarus, it it revokes the column one rates of duty. Now, Belarus does not have permanent normal trade relations, but it it revokes the the most former, uh, most favored nation tariffs for Belarus and gives the same sort of process whereby the president can, can grant MFN subject to the resolution of disapproval. This thing is going to pass. What's most interesting to me is what happens on the Senate side. And what I mean by that, and it, it picks up on a little bit of, of what you were saying uh, when you asked me what else we can expect from Russia or on Russia. So on the Senate side, part of what's under consideration is the ban on uh, imports of oil from Russia, oil and gas from Russia. The House passed separately a bill on that regard. Of course, the president took this action, right? So the president has, by executive action, prohibited uh, imports of oil and gas from Russia. Nevertheless, the House wanted to act, and I I understand fully why members of Congress wanted to get on record supporting that. I think there's a lot of support in the Senate for that same measure. And there is, I think, some real desire on the part of the Senate to add that uh, ban on oil and gas imports to this Russia PNTR bill. Now that's important, not just because, you know, they're going to uh, add the, the ban on oil uh, and, and gas imports, but it's important because it tells me that this bill is a an amend, a vehicle that may attract other amendments too. You know, once you say you're going to open up the bill and, and amend it, if that's what they decide to add this this oil ban, it could be a vehicle for other amendments with respect to Russia. And I'm sure there are many members of Congress who have a whole variety of different ideas about what they would like to see done with respect to Russia. I know Senators Corden and Hassan, for instance, have a bill, I think it bans gold imports from Russia, something along these lines. That's I think there's some concern there because we use gold in, in electronic equipment manufacturing, but I could easily see something like that gathering uh, support and getting purchase on this Senate PNTR vehicle, which looks to be to be a moving train. So that I think is where where folks should look and see what what else could ride on that that uh, Russia PNTR bill in the Senate.
0: Thank you for that, Brian. And so switching gears a little bit, uh, it was announced that USTR and the UK would be holding joint trade dialogues starting next week. Do you have any insight on how those discussions are going to go? Yeah, I think, um, look, the UK
1: has really been trying to get the Biden-Harris administration to pick up where the Trump administration left off in terms of free trade agreement negotiations. That's not what this is. Um, I think they're calling it the US-UK economic or US-UK trade dialogue, something along those lines. Uh, And pointedly, it is not uh, a resumption of free trade agreement negotiations, at least at this point. I think the desire on the part of some, uh, both inside the winder building uh, or otherwise, is to uh, eventually allow this to graduate into being full-fledged free trade agreement negotiations. And that could be where it goes. But for now, it's really just uh, a relaunching of, of our economic talks. And it's March 21st, I believe in Baltimore. I think in April or May, there will be another event in Scotland somewhere, uh, uh, also another kind of meeting of this. And it's my understanding also that I think the intention is to try to resolve the 232 issues with the UK surrounding these these events, either you know, before the first or in between the two or maybe the second, but somewhere in that vicinity, they're they're going to try to resolve the 232.
0: Great, and so kind of in that similar vein of the Biden administration economic talks, economic frameworks earlier this week, this event. Senate- Finance Committee held a hearing on trade in the Indo-Pacific region, and then senators inquired further on the economic framework the Biden administration is pursuing. And a lot of senators seem to be worried about enforcement mechanisms and no promise yet on increased market access. And I'm just curious, you know, how do you think the Biden administration are going to address those concerns if they are?
1: Yeah, a great question. And it, it deserves maybe a little bit more discussion and a step back what is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework or the IPEF? Although a quick, funny story. I understand that they don't like the acronym IPEF. It's, it's an awkward thing to say. But I, I heard from a friend of the administration that especially so for those who are native speakers of Asian languages. So uh, some of the countries that we're trying to recruit here, they can't really say IPEF easily. So they're really looking for a a new a new uh, something to call it, new name for that, that, that deal. I think the, the way to think about this, and the administration is certainly trying to talk it up. Of course, there are requests for comment out both from uh, USTR on the, the trade and, and uh, the fair and resilient trade pillar and from the Department of Commerce, which is leading the three of the uh, four pillars, supply chain resilience, infrastructure, clean energy and decarbonization and tax and anti-corruption. Those are the commerce-led pillars. USTR has the fair and resilient trade pillar. Both of those agencies have asked for comments uh, on what should be included in the, in the IPEF and where they should be looking, those sorts of things. I think they're due April 11th. So for folks who are interested in doing that, I'm sure USTR would love, and commerce would love, uh, to hear from the business community what what they would like to see in these agreements. In terms of the trade pillar, USTR has been clear that it will not include new market access. And that, I think, is a real disappointment for a lot of folks in the business community. And I think there is quite a fair bit of skepticism in the business community that this will amount to much. I think from the administration's perspective, they understand fully that what the business community really would like would be to see the United States rejoin the comprehensive and progressive agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's really what the business community wants. I think what the administration would say is there is certainly not political support at present and perhaps not for the foreseeable future for the United States to to try to join that agreement. And so in the absence of being able to really fully engage with CPTPP, this is a next best alternative for an administration that really does want to show our allies in the Indo-Pacific, that it's an important region for them. And I think it's worth noting, too, that when the administration, the White House, put out a document on the uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, it did so in the context of a much broader strategy for the Indo-Pacific that included much more beyond trade, things like defense and democracy, governance, these sorts of things. So I I think that's how the administration is thinking about this, is kind of a, a broad, Uh, attempt to engage with the Indo-Pacific region beyond just trade. Now, trade is an important point, it's what what we focus on. Uh, I I think, again, the administration would love commentary. And I think our our trading partners who who do focus on the trade aspect of this, they'll focus on the other parts as well, but it's almost like there's a little bit of schizophrenia in the sense that I think many of them are enthusiastically supportive of having the administration turn its gaze toward the Indo-Pacific and welcome uh, this initiative, welcome the uh, U.S. hosting of the APEC forum in 2023. Uh, I think all of that is, they're, they're very happy about that. And and so you'll see some countries saying, wait, we love IPEF, let's, we're going to work with you to try to recruit more members, let's go. But I think there's also of a mind, it doesn't feel like a lot for them, at least on the, the fair and resilient trade piece. So there's, I think, a deep skepticism there in the absence of new market access commitments, what this really gets for them, especially for some of those trading partners that really do need to have a careful balance with respect to China. Uh, so where, you, especially where you've got China that's in RCEP, uh, that's seeking to join CPTPP. How, how aggressively are these countries that have that kind of relationship with China, going to want to embrace IPEF, which I think China will see as a, a threat. And uh, so that's, I think, kind of an open question, but nevertheless, I think for the those in the business community, I think the administration's perspective on this is, this is better than nothing. So that's, that's the IPEF. That's a, again, very long answer to your question. Uh, I, I also didn't think there were many surprises from the hearing, uh, other day it is notable that the labor community is following this and i I think that's a big reason why ipef uh why the administration has been so clear to say that market access would not be included because that that's not something the labor community wants to see but i do think there's there's some thought that that uh labor really is going to be infused in every aspect of this deal and i think there's there's questions how that works uh in in some Mm -hmm. regards so There's a lot of open questions here, I think, uh, but it it is, I think many many trade policy people think it's it's good. We wanna see the administration do this, but uh, I think we're all still scratching our heads exactly what it's gonna look like at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, thank you, Brian. Yeah, I find it really interesting, all the dynamics there. And that was something that was brought up in the hearing a lot is this is a first step, but what's gonna happen beyond that. So wanted to end up today on something we've discussed in the past, but not really recently. And I'm wondering if you have any updates on the TRIPS waiver discussions going on at the World Trade Organization.
1: (laughs) Oh yes, Uh, yes. So uh, of course there's been this discussion about the United States supporting a limited trips waiver for vaccines for quite some time. There had been for many months, a negotiation going on between what had been called the Quad. So that's the United States, the EU, South Africa and India. And just the other day, I can't remember if it was Monday or Tuesday, the whole week has been a blur there was a text leaked about what is purported to be, although even this part is ambiguous, reported to be uh, an agreement among the Quad. Now, again, I have to emphasize, it's ambiguous whether this is actually an agreement that those four countries have come to that they now intend to try to shop to the rest of the WTO membership. There's been some discussion, oh no, actually this is really just what the EU came up with and the other countries are it was leaked so that it could be publicly vetted and the other countries are holding their fire to see how that public vetting goes. I've also heard recently that no, no, actually, this is the director general's text and that she drafted this, the WTO director general's text. Uh, and it was leaked also for the same reason, to try to get that public vetting. I do think the director general is very in favor of this. Uh, she really wanted, I, I, don't, I, shouldn't, I, I don't know how she feels about the substance of it but I'm confident she is delighted at the idea that there could be an agreement on something like this that could be taken into the conference, the the ministerial conference, MC-12, that will take place, I think, the second week of June. So from her perspective, I think any agreement is a good agreement. Uh, Substantively, I'll say this text does a variety of things. It does, in fact, limit the mechanism, this waiver mechanism, to patents, not trade secrets, which was important for a lot of members. It limits it to vaccines only, although it does say there's a provision in the text that says the parties within six months will decide whether to extend the mechanism to diagnostics and therapeutics, which I think is is very concerning uh, for a lot of people. Also, the mechanism by its terms only applies to developing countries who have exported less than 10% of the volume of vaccines that have been exported throughout the world. That specific provision was intended, I'm confident, to exclude Russia and China. So China self-identifies, I think, as a developing country, and it has exported more than 10% of the vaccine in the world. Russia self-identifies as a developed country. So neither country under the terms of this text at present would, be, would benefit uh, from this mechanism. One interesting question that uh, has been posed to me, in the context of the WTO, countries self-identify really, what level of development they are at. Uh, Russia has self-identified as developed. Of course, right now there are crippling sanctions on Russia as there should be. And Russia's economy is tanking. I just saw as I'm sitting here because I've got uh, C-SPAN on quiet that there's a a headline, Putin admits Russian economy uh, taking a real hit. I I wonder in an environment where uh, obviously Russia has every incentive to make things complicated and and do what it can against the United States, if Russia wouldn't change its self-designation to a developing country at the WTO and thereby arguably be able to take advantage of this mechanism. If that is at all in question, I am confident the parties will come up with a different means by which to narrow the field upon which members can take advantage. Because there's no way, no way any of these countries wants to allow Russia to take advantage of this mechanism. So it's an interesting theoretical concept, but in practice, I think it'll, it'll be changed uh, if, if that really does look to be a real threat. So uh, I think where we are is we don't really know what the process is on this. Um, We don't know if it's even ultimately going to be something that is going to be shared with the other WTO membership. Time is short if they want to do that before the the ministerial. I think we have to see whether this becomes something that really does uh, become the compromise that will be pushed. I know that there are many, many in the business community who really think that this is not only unnecessary, but very, really unwise to take intellectual property and treat it in this way. And of course, that's been a consistent theme really since the United States announced its support for a waiver like this sometime in the middle of last year. I don't think those concerns have gone away at all. Uh, I don't think many in the business community are mollified by the idea that it is limited in the ways it's limited. Although, I mean, I think take your victories where they are. because it could have been worse. Uh, so there's there's not a lot of support for this in the business community, to say the least. I think also on the other side, the activists who were pushing for the the much broader uh, waiver offered by South Africa and India, I think they are also disappointed because it is limited in certain respects, as I've said. So in that regard, I think the administration could think to itself, well, gosh, both sides are angry. Maybe this is a good compromise. But I I don't. It's unclear where it all heads. But but that's a, again a long answer to your question, Daniel. That there is a ton of updates on the trips waiver this week and we'll we'll have to see uh kind of where it goes
0: yeah well a ton of information across the board uh, really appreciate it brian thank you very much as always for your insights um and thanks again thank you